Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a show featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the worlds of art, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hesham Montasser. My guest today is a friend and fellow Egyptian that I met during my time at Harvard. The way Rami Adib describes it is this. I actually remember my very first week, I landed there and I, and I asked around, are there any Egyptians? And everybody was like, yeah, there's two. There's Hashem Montasser and Basil Elbez. They're the two Egyptians that are around. You should meet them. And I was like, wow, I'm, 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 I'm in the company of greatness. No disrespect to Basil, but I was there first. Rami Adib studied computer science at Harvard before going on to work at companies like Microsoft and a hot startup at the time called Tell Me Networks, which ironically was later acquired by Microsoft. A few years later, and after getting his MBA from Stanford and spending time at Coastal Ventures, he caught the founder's bug, and in 2011, he started a company called Snip.it, right around the time of the Egyptian Revolution. Snip.it was eventually acquired by Yahoo, after which Rami decided to launch his own venture capital firm, 1984 Ventures. How are you? It's a pleasure to see you in high definition in a beautiful blue shirt for those that are on audio, not on video. So the last, I think the last time I saw you, which was probably 20 years ago or so, roughly, give or take, you looked exactly the same, same hair, that same enthusiasm, and look at me. So let's just start saying about what happened. And by what I mean, what happened, what happened to me. I mean, obviously no, 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 no. What me. happened is actually, uh, you are <laughs> of the fortunate camp of men uh, that lose their hair early. And what that means is when you're in your 30s, you look a little bit older. But once you get to your 40s and 50s, you look very, very <laughs> I like young. I, mean. I, on the other hand, have kept my hair on. And so when I was in my 30s, I looked great. And now that I'm in my <laughs> early 40s, it's all gray. And I look like a grandfather. Absolutely not. You look, you look as uh, great as I remember you from 20 years ago or plus as a very enthusiastic student uh, at Harvard. And many things have happened since. So I think we're going to try to cover some of those uh, tonight. Very recently in your world, and by your world, I mean the venture capital world, uh, specifically in the US, there was um, a well-known venture capitalist by the name of Joe Lonsdale, right? That tweeted a few days ago, a, a relatively controversial tweet. Uh, and just to put, kind of put in perspective, and we'll put this in the show notes as well. I mean, he's a very well-known venture capitalist. He started a number of companies that are highly successful is highly connected to Peter Thiel and some of the other PayPal mafia guys, et cetera, et cetera. So he's someone a lot of people listen to, certainly in venture capital circles uh, in Silicon Valley and beyond. What Joe said is, wow, great for fathers to spend time with their kids and support moms, but any man in an important position who takes six months of leave for a newborn is a loser. In the old days, men had babies and worked harder to provide for their future. That's the correct masculine response. Wow. Okay. So what's your reaction to this? Look, I think I, I would start by saying it's important to recognize that the U.S. is an incredibly politicized place today. Correct. And, and, and more so than a lot of other parts of the world where, where issues that should be taken by society overall, like abortion, like whether or not schools should be open or not open for the pandemic, are purely being taken on political lines. And it's an unfortunate I think it's very unfortunate. It's a byproduct of this polarized society, correct? 100%. Now, I think in the Silicon Valley world, we're also seeing this interesting polarization between what used to be sort of a, you know, what I'd call 
somewhat of a woke culture that is very progressive and very open and very diversity and inclusion and lots of, you know, lots of good initiatives, but also lots of good buzzwords. And then now increasingly you're seeing this very interesting uh, pushback. And the pushback is being led by primarily by the Peter Thiel mafia, right? Who I, and, 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 uh, and, and, you know, Peter Thiel is obviously the founder um, of PayPal. Uh, and then you get people like Joe Lonsdale, who helped him co-found Palantir. You get people like David Sachs. You get people like Keith Raboy um, in Miami, uh, who actually I happen to know very well because he also worked at Kosla. And, and what these guys have done is really push hard for a more conservative narrative in tech. Correct. I like that. I respect that. And the reason I respect it is because irrespective of political views, I do think there's nothing more dangerous than groupthink, um, than homogeneity of thought. I think there is, I, I also believe that, uh, you know, things like cancel culture or sort of a younger generation's uh, willingness to shut down any opposition or in essence to use a liberal means to foster liberal values are very dangerous. So I'm actually been very, I personally am, I'm a big advocate of having a more conservative tone in tech. Yeah, exactly. I want to get to this tweet because I don't think it's necessarily that anyone is saying, or at least I don't feel he shouldn't share his views openly. Uh, I think people are maybe taken aback by the tone using the word loser uh, kind of, you know, the equating masculinity with that. You know, it's very patronizing. Now, in this particular instance, first of all, like you have to take into account. So these guys were very big supporters of the Trump administration. Now you have a Biden administration. Um, there is a big push right now for the Biden administration to pass a very big tax overall. Right. The billionaire the tax is a big issue, all of that. Honestly. A lot of the conservative people in tech are opposed to it. And Pete Buttigieg was actually driving, you know, he's, he's, he's effectively driving our He's our labor secretary, right? I'm embarrassed to say, you know, you know, it's funny when I was in Egypt, I knew exactly what every minister is because it mattered in the U.S. I don't really know. I know there's a bunch of secretary. I think he's a labor secretary, right? But he's basically, uh, uh, we have a massive supply chain problems. We, we have a lot of issues in the U.S. right now. I actually think all Pete did is try to set precedent. And can we just put this in context? Sorry, Rami, to interrupt you, because for those that don't know the context, what happens is, Pete Buttigieg, which was a presidential contender, just had a baby with his partner and declared that he's taking six months off to uh, look after the baby or something of the sort, correct? Right. So he actually didn't take six months. I think he just took some time off in August and September and came back in October. Yeah. Yeah. And then Joe Lonsdale made it about a six month. And I'm not sure what he was referring to. Maybe, maybe in the news. You know, but I think Pete did what any person, what even... One of our CEOs just had a child. He also took a few weeks off. He was available for emergency calls. He was hopping on calls. So let me ask you this. If you would have a child now and you run your own business, and we're going to get into this in a minute, would you be able to take six months off? Question number one, is that realistic? Secondly, if someone in your organization that works for you effectively comes and tells you, Rami, you know, I'm a new dad. I want to take six months off. Would you think, even if you don't tell them that, that they're losers? No, I wouldn't think that they are. Although I have to qualify that Joe, Joe spoke about people in important positions, meaning, and I think by power positions, he meant not important, use power. I think he meant essentially politics. Look, do I think, I mean, taking a six month off is basically taking extended leave. I do believe that folks in powerful position, if they're going to take an extended leave, somebody else should take the role. Right. It's that simple. But taking a step back, uh, 
what happens with extended parental leave, look, it's a very personal decision. And it's also a function of many factors like, can you afford to take the time off? And can you afford to not take the time off? Correct. Right. Some people, you know, in the US, it's very expensive to get help. If you if you're two working parents, you don't not if you're Joe Lonsdale. I mean, and I think that was part of the criticism, right? Yeah, you can afford to hire full time yeah, help. Anyone he wants. Yeah. And probably have full, you know, or if you have a stay home mom or a stay home dad, then it's a lot simpler. But if you're both working, then it's really hard for you to raise a child. But it also turns out that if you're both working, you're exactly the ones that can afford to take unpaid parental leave. And that's the irony in this whole thing, like that we're all struggling. And uh, no one really, very few people can truly afford to just walk off the face of life for six months and hang out. No one really does it. And I think that's really, again, boils down to, I think Joe is trying to be Joe, trying to be controversial. Uh, he used the word masculinity, which, which is problematic because Pete is obviously, uh, uh, you know, he, he has a gay, he has a same sex partner. They adopted children. So I think going after, you know, taking a, taking a It was a double hit, yes. Double swipe. But yeah, we have big problems in this country around paternal leave. We have big problems in this country about not having a social safety net that allows people to take, forget about six months, four weeks off. We said a few minutes ago, if I were in Egypt or if I were still in Egypt, I would know every minister. So let's kind of maybe go back to that moment for a second. So you grew up in, in Egypt, as I did. And then moved to the States, well, moved to Canada first, correct, for, for, for high school, last, last two years of high school, and then um, went to Harvard, went to college, which is where we met. If you look back now on this, um, would you have expected yourself to have stayed in the U.S.? Was this decision a very deliberate decision? Was it circumstantial? And some other people, I want to just contrast that, including myself, spent a fair amount of time in the States, in my case, a decade but then made a decision to want to come back to the region for multiple purposes. So let's start with that, with that premise here. I'm very interested to hear how this all panned out to where you are today. So, so I, you know, I grew up in Egypt as well. I, I, I went to two years for high school in Canada, and then I, I went to Harvard for college, and, and my passion was programming. Look, I, I, and, and actually the story of programming goes back. My dad was a, a general in the army, and he brought home, like the, 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 I think there was a computer at work or something that was broken, and he brought it home to try to fix it. And then I started playing with it, and I was that was probably in late 80s, 1987, 1988. So it was one of the first computers I think anybody had ever seen. Did he of. have an engineering background, your father? He, he was an engineer as well. So he studied engineering, but then went to the Army. Yeah, well, well he did what was called in Egypt, Fenea which is the Army Military Technical Institute, which was one of the best technical institutes in the okay. uh, 70s when he was okay. in school. Okay. So he has a PhD in electrical engineering, but he's a mechanical engineer. Um, and so I fell in love with computers. Uh, then... I went to Harvard, uh, I studied computer science, and at the time I was really into programming, really into software. And the US was the only place to really build great software. Right? My dream in life was to intern at Microsoft. I interned at Microsoft in 1999. Was there a moment throughout this, you've done multiple things. You worked for big companies like Microsoft, you worked for some of the best VCs, you started your own company, you sold your company. Was there a moment during that pre-business school, after business school, where you were like, this is it. I'm staying here. This, I'm going to make this my home and I'm going to make it work. I think my mindset coming to the U.S. was that of an immigrant okay. who was coming to stay for better financial opportunities, for better standard of living. And the thought of going back actually didn't come until later. That's so interesting. I will say there is one key difference, though, between 
today and between the past 20 years. And that is there's a real thriving software industry in the region. And it's not just about software. It's also because the nature of software has changed where instead of you know the next big tech company, it doesn't have to be Cisco. It doesn't have to be very advanced tech. You're able now, software was a vertical, but now it's a horizontal chipping away at a whole bunch of industries. But there's two, I want to differentiate between two things. Saying that um, the field of computer science was obviously near, not nowhere near as, as advanced in Egypt, and therefore the opportunities for you to go back after college or after a number of years in the States didn't make any sense. And you coming with an immigrant mentality from the beginning saying, you know what, I want to make it in this country. The reason I want to differentiate here is as a, as a fellow Egyptian, I can relate to that. This is not a typical Egyptian way of thinking. I mean, Egyptians, unlike some other Arabs and, and other, uh, you know, minorities all over the world, do not necessarily think of immigration in th that way. So, you know, and many of them go to the States, um, but with very clear intentions of going back because of um, a variety of reasons. So was it the limitation in your field or was it your personal interest? And you know what? My opportunity set, including financially, will be much wider in the US. So from day one, I'm here to stay. I think the time I came to the US, which is the middle 90s, was a, was a time of somewhat of an economic and social decay in Egypt a little bit. It was a very unhopeful time. And I think my mindset was shaped by that. Contrast that with people who, you know, leaving 2010 or 2008 or 2000 or, or who came back after the revolution. It's just been, I think, I think that the national mood where I came to age was, was one of, yep, pick up and leave. No, I, I can relate to that. I completely understand. Okay. You, um, you did leave, you graduated, as you said, uh, and, and we're fast forwarding now, eventually work, wind up working on Kosla. So this was your first taste of venture capital essentially, right? Um, and then you founded your own company. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm bypassing a few stints here in the middle. I think you worked for Tell Me, which was a very hot and highly reputable uh, startup at the time. I remember this very well. That was part of my stint at Cosmo, et cetera. But I mean, actually, if I may, I do want to talk about Tell Me for a moment because it's also back to the whole Egyptian mentality. So, sure. so leaving Egypt, though, I had this desire to obviously immigrate to the U.S. to make it here. But a big part of that is to work at a big, safe institution like Microsoft. So my dream in life, especially in the 90s, was to work for Bill Gates, right? And I interned at Microsoft between my junior and senior years. And I was planning to take my, my full-time offer and move to Seattle and be an engineer at Microsoft. And it was my American white friends who, were like, who basically were like, Rami, what are you doing, dude? Who works for Microsoft? You got to go to Silicon Valley. You got to go like join a startup. And I had never thought of joining a startup before. I had never thought of a mm. startup world. You know, I, I just, you have to put yourself in my shoes at the time. I'm trying to get, you know, I, I want to switch from an F1B visa to H1B yeah, visa yeah. so I can like <laughs> settle in. The last thing I want to do is take that risk. But, but, the, but the, the environment and the atmosphere of 1999 was all like, you know, we have got to, to build companies from scratch. That's how wealth is being built. That's where the glory is. Yeah, the first wave of the internet boom. I mean, the, 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 the first wave of the internet boom. And, 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 and really it was my, a lot of my friends actually, that was sort of, I think, a big pivotal shift in my own mindset between I want this safe big company job and to let me try this startup thing. And I joined Tell Me and it was crazy because there was a massive economic crash. And I realized that a startup was indeed risky. But at the same time, I realized that a startup was a lot of fun. And you wind up at Microsoft who acquired Tell Me. 
but, but seven years later, but yeah, yeah, but for the next seven years, I was at Tell Me. And, seven and I, years is a long time. Yeah, that's yeah, a yeah, long time. I ended up really loving the whole world of being in a startup. Uh, and I think that 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 push by by sort of my more risk taking American friends really shaped my mindset tremendously for the rest of my career. When we come back, we'll dig into Rami's decision to re-enter the venture capital space, this time with his own firm, 1984 Ventures. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with our guest, Rami Adib. Before the break, Rami was telling us about his seven years at Tell Me Networks, which in today's world, by the way, is an eternity, and how much he loved working in a startup environment. When you are in a startup, when you're in any organization and the organization is growing, it's an incredibly fulfilling time. It's very rewarding. Uh, you know, I like to, I li- I like to, tell, to tell founders or, or, or really people in, in general in, in tech, you know, when the bus stops, everybody is, is elbowing to the front. But when the bus is moving, everybody's just holding onto their seat, right? And you want to be in a, move, in a fast-moving bus. Growth and scale is just an incredibly exciting and thrilling and rewarding phase to go to. And during that time, tell me, we grew from like 10 million in revenue to 120 million in revenue in about four years. So that was crazy. Um, just a crazy ride for us. So um, you, you stayed with that fast moving bus for quite some time. And then eventually the bus was acquired by a truck and yeah. Microsoft <laughs> acquired the company. So here we go. You're back at Microsoft, funnily enough. You yeah. spent some time there. Clearly something about corporate life didn't gel for you because you didn't stay very long. Uh, three months. <laughs> You know, I had a flight to bit. Look, I was a really good engineer, um, but I was always fascinated by the business side. And I had applied to business school. And it so happens that Microsoft acquired Tell Me around the same time. So I stayed at Microsoft for three months um, and then went to Stanford for business school after. And then how did you wind up starting your own company? Funnily enough, around kind of the Egyptian revolution time. I mean, you know, you're coming out of, of, of school. Presumably you have some debt. You come from, you know, a country and culture that is not super, you know, that's somewhat on the risk averse side, let's put it, put it mildly. Right. We're not known to kind of, you know, jump on. I mean, that's just not the culture, right? Probably have parents that are sitting in Cairo or I don't know if they were in Canada at that point and sort of saying, you know, just, you know, stay safe, pay down your debt, work for a respectable company, maybe go to even the Microsoft now that you graduated for a better salary. Walk us through your thinking here. You know, I, I finished business school and then I ended up joining Kosla right after business school. And uh, Kosla was, it's, it's a VC firm founded by a gentleman called Vinod Kosla, who's a founder of Sun Microsystems in the 80s and then was one of the best performing venture capitalists in the 90s and 2000s before starting his own fund. Um, and I was there for two years. And Vinod has a quote that I, I really, really like. Um, and it says that most people are limited not by what they can do, but rather what they think they can do. And I couldn't agree more. Part of my mission as a venture capitalist today is to let entrepreneurs recognize what they're capable of, not just via capital, but in every other aspect. And part of it is I was working at Kosla and I was learning a ton, but I felt a bit like, I felt a bit like a Sherpa who is guiding people to the mountain when instead of being the one who can still climb the mountain. Um, I had, I think, what people in the VC community would prescribe as entrepreneur envy. Yeah, but funnily enough, you had been at a, at a startup. I mean, maybe you didn't start it, but you spent seven years at a startup. You know that. So this is not, you know, 
this is i'm just it's interesting it's not like you have no, 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 no. any so, experience so, and actually uh, you're exactly right i i was enjoying being a venture capitalist and it was a great gig and then then the egyptian revolution happened in in in, in january 2011 and when the egyptian and, and the egyptian when the egyptian revolution happened uh two things took place one i saw all my friends uh taking so much risk in egypt you know i would call, talk to my cousin and she's in tahrir square and i was you know sitting in my ivory tower at venture capital scared of starting a company where, where basically people <laughs> throw money at you <laughs> right and if you fail then they give you more money for the next they one celebrate yeah they're like that's great give they celebrate more. you right and i'm like wow i'm really i'm really quite a you know a uh, yeah a coward <laughs> almost like but then another thing that happened really is i saw i saw an idea that i got really excited about what happened is a lot of my friends in in the u.s actually were writing me and saying like, Rami, what's happening in Egypt? They're, you know, they, they're like, oh, there's an Egyptian revolution. We know this one Egyptian. Let's ask them what's going on. So I started sharing a lot of articles about the revolution on Facebook. But back in 2011, Facebook really wasn't at all optimized for sharing articles. Twitter was pretty good, but Twitter was a little bit too niche. And so I really wanted to start a social network where people would share content and discuss it. And that was the idea behind Snippet. So I went to, to Vinod, was my boss, and I was like, hey, I want to start a company. I want to quit. And he's like, no, 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 you're... I was a principal of the fund. He's like, you're about to be a partner in our next fund. And I was like, no, really, I want to quit. And he's like, you can't walk away from a partner offer. And I was like, well, but I, I really excited about this idea. And I got my friends into higher square and we're going to change the world. <laughs> one entrepreneur at a time. And, uh, and that's, was, so, you know, so Coastal ended up backing, um, you know, uh, backing the startup and I became an entrepreneur. So you had, you started the company two years, you were acquired by Yahoo. You worked for Yahoo now again, briefly. Two years this time because there was there, yeah there was gold gold handcuffs attached so so that ah, took a little bit yeah uh, it was I left Yahoo in 2015. Are you surprised? I mean, I am busy describing the story. I mean, you know, <laughs> you went from startup to VC to startup to your own company to any. I think if I feel dizzy re-narrating re the story, I'm sure you felt a little tired at that point. You had had a fantastic outcome by selling your own company to obviously one of the most successful companies of our time, certainly at the time. Uh, so you took a bit of time off, I would take it. Uh, and you tasted unemployment or you tasted retirement or a combination of the two. And then what happened? And then I wanted to, you know, back to the, uh, the, the Vinod quote, most people are limited not by what they can do, but rather what they think they can do. It actually turns out in a very a full twist, you know, circle, because we were talking about Joel Lonsdale today. Joel Lonsdale, before starting uh, from uh, 8VC, was a founder of Formation 8. He started it with two other friends of mine, one of whom is Jim Kim. For the previous fund, Formation 8 had blown up, and they were each started their own fund. So Jim reached out to me and said, Rami, I'm starting a fund. Do you want to come join me? And I was like, wow, you can just start a fund? <laughs> like, the idea of just... A person starting a venture, you know, to me, Vinod started the fund because he was the most successful person. And remember, I'm, a, I'm an investor for Mission 8 in their first fund. So I, I kind of followed the story well. from a very different <laughs> perspective. You did well. Okay. So they were trying to get you to work with them. And I was like, I don't, you know, I, I'm the, I don't know about starting a fund. Also, I think the approach, the, 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 the vision was very different. Uh, Jim is much more about like cutting edge tech. I'm much more like, I love, just love software. I don't like hardware. I don't like uh, frontier technology in general. Because I, for, 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 for many reasons, but, uh, but he was like, look, I'm flying to Hong Kong. Do you want to come with me to Hong Kong and let's go pitch? And I was like, sure. So I flew to Hong Kong with him <laughs> and saw just, you know, Jim really, he taught me a lot about 
it, it's really possible to start a fund. You need a good story. You need an anchor investor. Um, and so I learned a lot from him, but then I need, I had one big open question, which is who you know, I need an anchor investor. So I started talking to people, I'm starting a fund. And I spoke to this guy, Emil Michael, who was one of the top guys at tell me, and then was Uber's was Travis's right-hand person at Uber. Also a Harvard Egyptian class of 94, I think. Yeah. Then like two weeks later, he calls me up and he was like, Hey Rami, there's this gentleman from Egypt who's going to be in the Bay area or from London, uh, called Mohammed Mansour. He's looking to invest in seed funds. Do you, uh, Please, can you do me a fa- can you do me a favor and meet with him? And I'm like, I'll I'll do you a favor. <laughs> and I met with Ham um, Mansour, and I was very very impressed. Actually, he really was super aligned with the vision of building an enterprise software early stage fund focused on software going after all these boring industries. Because he, I remember him telling me, I I'm I'm sitting in Egypt or in London or in Africa, and I see my business is being challenged from yeah. all sides. He saw the pain points. He understood. Yeah, I want to I want to see these challengers at their incubation, not when they come in Silicon Valley, not when they come knocking at my back door, like what happened with Uber or Airbnb and others. And that was very interesting. He really wanted the visibility into what's happening in the world. And so so Mansour Group or Man Capital really ended up being actually our uh, anchor investor and largest check in fund one. Uh, and uh, and we did that, raised first fund in 2017, and then we just uh, closed our second fund earlier this year. So you launched a company called 1984, um, your own venture capital firm. I want to just another uh, tweet. That's what happens with tweets. They stay there so you can find them. You have a pinned tweet that says, seed funds are getting squeezed from above and below. Um, and just to unpack this a little bit, this is obviously a phenomenon. Everybody, well, not everybody, but many people that either invest, follow, or in the tech world talk about today which is the fact that back in the day, it used to be very cleanly and clearly organized. You had C funds, you had guys that invested in Series A, guys invested in growth, later stage, you had, you had PE, you had private equity, that is, and then you had, of course, public market investing. Today, everybody's going everywhere. The late stage is coming to early stage, the seed is doing A, the A is doing seed. The public markets have come started earlier, crossover funds, Tiger, go to all of these guys. The fidelities are coming into the last rounds. They're even going earlier. A16Z, the recent Horowitz of the world, are coming into your domain. So simple question. A, what did you mean by that tweet? I'm assuming it's what I've just described. And if so, as a seed fund that is not the size of Andreessen Horowitz, how do you survive? I mean, how, what kind of thesis would you have that means that 1984 you know, survives for the next, I don't know, decade or two? No, no, excellent question. I think the, to your point, that's exactly what's happening. Uh, so much money. Uh, I think investors across the globe realize that there is so much profit to be made in, made, made in tech, right? And a lot of these profits happen pre-IPO because, and uh, to some extent, many companies are taking longer to IPO. Right. Uh, you know, when Google IPO'd or, you know, if, if when Amazon IPO'd, it was, I don't know, it was a few hundred million or a billion. Very early days. Yeah. The, I, I, I bought quickly. Yeah. Yeah. But Stripe is going to IPO at like a hundred billion or something or, or above. Right. Uber, by the time it went out to the public market, was at 60 billion, where there's a lot of yield, a lot of, uh, of, of sort of profit to be squeezed in that journey. So a lot of the late stage funds started coming earlier. Um, and by late stage, I mean folks like Tiger Global or Addition or Insight that were traditionally doing Series E or F are now starting to do Series B and C, and now they're starting to do Series A. 
So the Series A funds realize that, wait, I'm competing with Tiger um, or I'm competing with Edition, which is, uh, you know, Lee Fixel's fund. And, and, and they come in with, they are more valuation insensitive. Why? Because ultimately they're dropping a 10 million bucks to get a call option on writing a hundred or $200 million check pre-IPO. That's really what they're after is that growth cycle. So, so they are winning the deals from the other early stage funds. So then the Series A funds started coming earlier. So, so it's almost everybody is getting squeezed from above. And that's how I say we're getting squeezed from above. That now we're seeing a lot of Series A funds coming at seed. Getting squeezed from below is also a new phenomenon where there were so, I think, you know, when I was, uh, when I was in my 20s, even when I made some money from Tell Me, Taking that money and investing in startups wasn't a thing. It's very different today. Today, the younger generation of entrepreneurs, literally, they make 100K and they take it all and put it in other startups. There is this insatiable appetite to be an investor, to be part of the tech ecosystem financially. And the access has, 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 has mushroomed, right? I mean, I can go on AngelList today and put 1K literally in 20 probably decent pre-seed or seed level startups that that is by logging in it's automatic it takes me exactly i do it all the time uh, it takes me five minutes you know if i want to you know i mean that is phenomenal right you're exactly right Hashem. i think it's it's a, it's, a, it's a combination of mindset plus access so 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 all of a sudden i, I you know as a founder you can actually raise if you have access in the valley you can raise a million a million and a half from 25k 50k investors who are very unassuming and who are very flexible in terms, uh, much more flexible than we would so, be. You're going to negotiate your prorata rights. You're going to look at many things, anti-dilution, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's precisely all the above. For, for us, the, the, it hasn't affected our ability to, to win deals, but we have seen the valuation creep up. But that's not true, the valuation creep up. That is the market, the entire market, liquidity, there's a huge amount of liquidity. And I mean, valuations are up by all measures across SaaS, all other sectors. hundred uh, percent. They're, they're up by all measures. So how do you compete? Number one, we have got to find deals where others aren't looking. By the time the company makes it to IC and is being shopped around with 200 venture capitalists, it's too late. Can I just unpack this particular point? Does that mean you have to go pre-seed? You literally have to find a guy with like, uh, you know, a sheet of paper, because I mean, YC is very early stage. And as you said, once they're in YC, and just explain YC is YC, you know, Y Combinator, which is a very famous C program, essentially, that uh, that has taken many companies from Airbnb and Stripe and others uh, through. Um, a lot of VCs, lots of people, including myself, look at this kind of thing. So what, you, you find them on the streets and on the bars of San Francisco? Look, I think that there are two axes to this. There is traction and there's founder pedigree. Mm. And right now, a founder with pedigree and traction is out of reach. Mm. You need to either found a founder pre-traction or found a founder with some traction, but who wouldn't fit, you know, who's not a YC alum or coming Doesn't out fit of the ne neatly the boxes, yeah. And I love that. I love that because we, from day one, our whole thesis has been, you know, actually finding the diamond of the rough or software going after large antiquated boring industries. And we have made a name of ourselves into finding entrepreneurs and taking bets on entrepreneurs that other VCs wouldn't take a bet on. And it's not about like 
diversity and inclusion from a racial or gender issues. It's more like, look, we look at a founder and I really assess a product and make it that, do we believe this person can build a massive business? And there is a need here. Why would this founder come to you and not go to the A16Zs and the Sequoias of the world? So first, we have to found this founder. Okay. You actually have to go and find them. Before they make their, uh, you know, their road Fish. down Sand Hill Road. I'll, I'll give you a great example. HBS. HBS has an incredible talent of entrepreneurs. They don't really have access to the valley. It's hilarious. We just invested in two entrepreneurs out of HBS and brilliant guys. And, and it was a very decent valuation. Had they not gone to Harvard and gone to YC, they would have raised it to X evaluation. As somebody that graduated from there, why would they not have access to the Valley? I mean, there's many, many Harvard uh, HBS alumni that work at the Valley. They can find them and probably cold, cold email them or cold call them. No, 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 there is, but it's a very different world. It, when, so, so it's precisely what you just said, Hashim. They don't have existing network with the Valley. They can build one by picking up the fall call and phone and calling those HBS. So you're trying to disintermediate, but they can go to General Catalyst, which is in Cambridge. But that will take months. Mm. Contrast that with a founder. You know, we, we invested, we did invest in a, in a really, you know, a founder with a ton of pedigree and no traction. It's a company, now it has more traction. It's a company, the founder, you know, Harvard alum, was at a bunch of really successful startups like O Power of Fat Iron Health. He basically, with four calls, had four top hot VC partner meetings lined up in a week. Right? When you are cold reaching, cold calling from, from Harvard, you're not going to get that. So again, that's access or pedigree. And so our job, I, I, do, I believe that the founders with access, which we tend to be second-time entrepreneurs, don't necessarily have a higher chance of building a successful company i think they have a higher chance of raising initial set initial round of financing right but that's about it Rami, do you find as i mean the unusual pedigree that you have which is really a combination of starting your own company working at a very large vc working at a large company i mean you've really tried you had a few you've worn a few hats which is unusual but probably excellent for the position you find yourself in, which is backing entrepreneurs. Do you get sometimes a feeling because you started your own company and sold your own company as well to be, let's assume Hashem comes to you. I'm a first time founder. I'm doing certain things. And you're like, you know what? Let me tell you what to do. Or, you know, I mean, even have, maybe you don't do that, but have the compelling need to jump in almost. I had that remarkably Hashem. I had that when I was at Kosla. So again, my journey was like a like a like operator at a startup. Then I was at Kosla. Then I was a founder. Then at 1984. Correct. So, but Kosla was pre was was pre snippet, pre founder. Pre snippet, and I was you know I I was a really good product engineer, you know engineering manager, architect, product person, and I was so obsessed. Was like, no, here's you know in one of the startups I almost was acting head of product, and I was having regular product check ins with them. I don't anymore because you think it's disruptive, or because you have mellowed, or because you don't think it's the right thing to do. That's not your role as a venture capitalist. Because I think the highest lever, leverage item I can, I have at my disposal is to uh, is, is, is a team building. You know, the team you build is the company you build. I, I know also as a founder, there is only that many items I'm willing to listen to. I also think that whatever thoughts I have a product or strategy, a smart founder will figure out on their own. The highest value item I can provide to a startup is push them to hire 
a high caliber executive team filling the holes that I see in the organization. And that's where I pound my fist in the table. And that's where I push very hard hiring the rest. Uh, you know, there's will be some advice here, some advice there will help also with fundraising uh, will help with founder therapy. I always tell founders <laughs> will help you with founder therapy. Just pick up the phone calls. And it's something it's, you know, it's an area that, um, that I, you know, as a founder, actually, I think it was my weakest, uh, my weakest point, like my entire, you know, self-worth as a function of the success of the business, which was very counterproductive. And it's a lonely path as well. It is. In terms of building your own company now, which is essentially an asset management business. I mean, I was in this business for, for a number of years, and it's a business that's a function of two things. One, raising capital successfully and, and, and raising capital almost all the time. You know, maybe it's slightly different. I ran a, a business that was looking at public markets. So the advantage was that I had a daily mark to market. I could know at the end of every day where I was in terms of my performance. You don't have that luxury. But the disadvantage was that you're almost always raising money perpetually. But venture capital has become that today. I mean, you close a fund and you're almost immediately going to the next fund and so on and so forth. So these are some of the challenges, but some of the highlights also of what you do. What have you found surprising or challenging that you didn't expect? So there has been two sets, there's been two sets of surprises. The first is on the environment itself, which you alluded to. The environment is changing rapidly. We have to be agile. We have to figure out how to compete with capital coming from everywhere. But the second set of challenges has been on firm building. I've come to recognize that, and it has been a good surprise, that building a firm, a venture capital firm, has many similarities uh, and many challenges similar to what I faced building Snippet. How do you build a team? How do you motivate a team? How do you take some of your actions as an individual and make them act? actions that the institutions can take? How can you make sure that those values that are institutionalized can run without you being part of it? This has been very interesting because especially with venture, venture is a very, you know, venture is a very, um, it's a very it's, it's art meets science. Um, parts of it is science. Hey, here's how we do cap tables. Here's what we do terms. But part of it is art. How do you assess a team's ability to build? How do you size a market? And institutionalizing art has been very hard. And given your background and where you grew up, um, and given that this business is also now becoming more and more international and global every day, so back in the day, it was essentially the domain of the US, not even the US. I mean, most companies came from exclusively from Silicon Valley, and if not from Silicon Valley, from New York or you know, two or three cities. Uh, are you leveraging that in any way? Are you seeing, uh, do you look at, for example, the Middle East as part of your investment domain? And if so, just for, for the listeners that many come from the region, what's your kind of general view that you're seeing in terms of Middle East tech? It, it, it's funny. Actually, everybody in the U.S. right now is really excited about um, the Middle East and Latin America. It's pretty hilarious. And, and Africa and Europe. Uh, I think people like what they don't have access to in general. Absolutely. In fact, if I, if I think of, candidly, I think I have three constituents of investors. I have, a, I have Middle East investors. They only want me to invest in the U.S. and Latin America. I have Latin American investors. They only want me to invest in the Middle East and the U.S. And then I have American investors who are like, oh, my God, Rami, you have access to the Middle East? You have access to Latin America? Like, wow, yeah. that's amazing. I don't even know why you're wasting your time in the U.S. I'm like, because it's the largest market. So anyways, we're, we're, 80, <laughs> we're 80, 85% U.S., right? And we're always going to be that way. 
but we do opportunistically invest in 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 um, in Latin or in the, or in the Middle East. We get really excited just about founders who are solving hard problems, irrespective of the sector or the domain. Um, any economy has an amazing room for a technology enabled business to disrupt the large incumbents. And that's really exciting. That's why we're seeing, you know, Kareem is, 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 is you know, is, is the, is, you know, we're seeing the Kareems, we're seeing the Souks, we're seeing Yadi Yadi, I'm sure you're, yeah. you know, the Swivels. And the, and the guys are graduating from these companies. Exactly. And, and, and now you get, you know, the Kareem go to Swivel and then you now you get the Swivel guys going to the next one. And, and, and that's exactly, and we're seeing the same trend in Latin America. You see Kayak, you know, in, in Mexico and the alums of Kayak going, you know, we see Rappi and the alums of Rappi are going to do the thing. So it's, it's everywhere. And that's really exciting. Right, the generation of entrepreneurs. Uh, ultimately, though, we're um, and and so we, uh, you know, we're slowly starting to, to to dip our feet. But ultimately, I think we'd always be working with local partners that we like. I think our biggest value proposition is help these startups build build bridge to the Silicon Valley. Right. So once you feel you really want to be global, once you really want to raise money here from the valley, then that, that's what we would love to to be helpful with. Rami, this has been wonderful. I'm very happy to have reconnected. You're a wise man beyond your years. Really, really enjoyed our conversation and hopefully the next uh, time I see you is going to be either here in Dubai or somewhere else in the Middle East. Uh, thank you, Hashim, and, and uh, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hashem Montasser. We're produced by Chirag Desai and our content director is Farah Al-Sharif. Please follow us on Instagram at thelighthouse underscore AE or send us an email at connect at thelighthouse.ae and tell us what you think. And please, please, please share this link with your friends if you've enjoyed this episode. We'll see you again in two weeks.